Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael and I have brought along today a special co-host, Taylor from Riverhouse Games. Taylor, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing just fine. Uh, it's a balmy 40 degrees in Minnesota in January. Normally it's at about minus 40 uh, with wind chill at this time of year. So um, we've been out and about uh, outside. Um, Lauren and I went to the zoo the other day. Um, it's We've been enjoying the warm weather, although we are gripped with fright as the... Uh, the the signposting of climate change is is dropping on our heads pretty pretty obviously it looks like so yeah um it's one of those things it's it's a double edged sword I remember I used to watch I used to live in Cleveland so mm-hmm. I I used to watch the Drew Carey show because it's all about Cleveland and and there was an episode in particular where he was trying to uh, accelerate climate change because he hated the weather in Cleveland so much it's like <laughs> so climate change probably going to be an ecological disaster. But it might make the winters a little nicer in a lot of places. So, you know, pro con. I don't I don't know if, if this is relatable content, but Minnesota is like the worst spot to be for any like weather or climate stuff. Um, because we're right smack dab in the middle of the continent. Uh, so we are the farthest away from any like large body of water to help regulate temperatures. Uh-huh. So in the winter, we get just chilled down to the bone. Um, where my grandparents live up in northern Minnesota, a couple years ago, it was colder there than it was on the surface of Mars. <laughs> but then also during the summer, since there's no nothing to like help clean the heat, we just get uh, huge humidity and we had like a 90 day stretch where it was over 95 degrees a couple oh. summers ago as well. So, so, so the extremes to either side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we need to do an episode on environment at some point, but that's not what we're doing today. Uh, So today we are going to do faculty meeting episode 107, Vulnerable. Uh, Now, the reason that we gather for these faculty meetings is so that myself and our guest uh, can talk about our recent games and the general state of RPGs in our lives. And we hope that through these conversations, we can share some of the experience that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Taylor, would you mind saying what that one piece of advice is? I would love to. And that piece of advice is if you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Now, with that out of the way, do we have any announcements this morning? Do we? I don't know. Do, we, do you have any announcements this morning? I think we've got a few. I would like to announce that uh, we have finally figured out category podcasting on WordPress. Turns out it's really easy once you know what you're doing. Uh, so we have created two new podcast feeds for the RPG Academy. One is live, L-I-V-E as in live, and that will be anytime we do a live event. So even though we're recording this, this does not qualify as a live event. Uh, But when we do a live event like the Twitch streams that Scott does on Mondays, Lawful and Orderly, we are going to start live broadcasting a a 13th age game using a Pathfinder adventure path. Those will be live events and those will go into the live feed. The thing about those to note is that the editing will probably be a lot less than what you will get on this version of the podcast where we do a lot of editing. That's basically going to be taking the audio from what we have and then dumping it over I'm sure we'll clean it up some, but there may not be the same content editing that we normally do. Or at least maybe some will and some won't, I guess I should say. Scott, they're still talking about what they're going to do on their feed. They may go through and actually edit it. We haven't decided yet. 
And then I also did an archives feed because we now have so many episodes that all of our episodes won't fit on iTunes or Google Play because it only shows the most recent 300 and we now have over 400. Uh, so if you go to the archives, it'll be our oldest stuff. So the stuff that has fallen off is now there. Do you have any announcements, Taylor? Uh, I have more announcements that we probably have time to deal with. But the big one that I want to talk about is the uh, zine that I started this year in 2017, which is called Sad Things on Index Cards. <laughs> I love that. Or STOIC uh, is the acronym. That is a zine about micro games. Uh, so it's not only games. We also take in um, creative nonfiction like essays or blog posts. Um, we also do poetry and visual art. Our first issue is right now with my layout guy. We have submissions open for the second issue. Um, if this is coming out in late February, there may still be time to get your submission in. The theme for the second issue is augury, which is the um, it's the ancient practice of reading birds as omens and making uh, predictions about them. But it's generally just kind of umbrellaed out to how we predict the future and plan about things. So the the profits for all of the zines, I don't actually make any money off of them because um, I don't have a budget to unfortunately pay for submissions. That is something in the future that I'm looking at. But I think it would be kind of unethical for me to make money off of this since that is the case. Um, so any money raised by these zines will be going to charity. So the first issue is going to be donated to the ACLU. Uh, the second issue, all the money is going to be going to Planned Parenthood. Oh, that is that is fantastic. And I guess we should announce, just in case anyone who's listening missed it before, but uh, you are the newest, as of this recording, member of the RPG Academy Network. Yeah, I'm the little baby. Um, I don't know what the release schedule is. You may have heard me in detention. Um, I was joking before the recording that what a way to start out my first day at the Academy. I wind up in detention. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but, but uh, did you did you have fun because if so you did it right oh my goodness it was a blast um you you could hear me just like vomit at the mouth about druids which has been something that i have been like overwhelmed with my love for i've been playing D since i was uh 11 so that's like 16 years this year and i had never played a druid before until a catacon 2016 and it has completely changed the way that I look at, like, everything. I love druids. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, but when you said a catacomb, I involuntarily smiled. Like, I just yeah. yeah. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your show. For anybody who's not familiar, what is Riverhouse Games? Yeah, so Riverhouse Games is kind of the umbrella term for everything that I do that's RPG-related. Um, the show that is added to the network is called Game Closet, um, and that is an interview show uh, where I get to talk to some awesome queer and LGBT tabletop gamers. So that's my... Uh, it's kind of a selfish pet project because my goal is to meet as many awesome uh, queer people doing the same things that I love because my queerness and um, my activity in the tabletop gaming scene are too... Two kind of discrete pillars that have created the person that I am today. And trying to find ways to merge those has been something that has interested me recently. And so finding people who share that sort of, um, that sort of same, like, atmosphere and celebrating the projects that they're doing. Um, so talking to queer creators, um, we just did an episode that should actually be up by now. Their Kickstarter may be closing for the Story Brewers, uh, RPG company. Um, they have a project on Kickstarter right now 
out called Alas for the Awful Sea, which is a weird little like quirky powered by the apocalypse game about a Scottish fishing village in the 1800s. Um, so I get to talk to Haley and uh, Veronica uh, about that and their projects and working on RPGs as a, a couple in Australia. Um, so it's, you know, that's kind of the, the things that you get when you listen to Game Closet is finding out more people who, who maybe share these identities um, and doing the things in our community that are awesome. Like, like that that is, sounds awesome i am a fan of the show i'm obviously a fan of you and the work that you do which is why we are excited to have you as part of the network and you know we've said for years that the rpg academy we want to focus on inclusivity and basically the rpg academy is a bunch of white straight dudes mm-hmm. you know it, it is what it is that you know that it's just the way it worked out but we are happy to bring more voices to the table that can have representation and I'm just I'm excited to have that voice, your voice as part of the network and help grow that there is a segment of this hobby that is underrepresented. It's it's slowly changing and we're happy to be a part of that change just Mm -hmm. by helping to promote what you're doing because you are you are the more vocal part of that. We're just supporting you and and happy to have you part of our team. Yeah, and thank you. I do want to just take like a a quick second to um, just say that like um, obviously like queer people aren't a monolith and we don't all share the same opinions and same viewpoints. Um, and my, my goal for the show isn't that I'm the voice for it. It's more to highlight the people that I have on it because I, I mean, I'm a dude. I'm white. I'm able-bodied. Uh, I'm relatively financially stable, um, as, as stable as we can be here. But that's not the case for a lot of queer and LGBT people, especially in our community. I I would prefer not to be the the poster child for that, and so I do I do try to sort of highlight the the viewpoints and the people that we have on rather than using it as a platform for myself. Um, so I just want to be upfront about that right away um, and say that um, that 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 that's my goal for it. No, and again, that was me misspeaking, misrepresenting your your ideal, so completely understood. So before we move into the show proper, let's let people know how they can get a hold of us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the RPG Academy. You can also find my normal co-host Caleb at the Caleb G. You can find today's special guest co-host Taylor at Leviathan Files. You can also get a hold of us by email, Taylor. Yeah, so you can email the RPG Academy. You can email Michael at michael at the RPGacademy.com. Caleb is Caleb at the RPGacademy.com. And the show as a whole is podcast at the RPGacademy.com. And how about yourself? If people want to email you, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you can email my show at riverhousegamesmn at gmail.com. Riverhouse Games, I guess is already someone's snatched up that email, even though <laughs> I can't figure out who owns it or where they are. But I'm, I live in Minnesota, and I'm a pretty big Minnesota fanboy, so that M at the, MN at the end is pretty important to get a hold of me. I, I will say that I am way more active on Twitter, so um, if you have any questions, just shoot me a tweet at Leviathan Files. I would be happy to talk to everyone. Fantastic. Okay, so with all of that out of the way, let's get into today's show proper, and we are going to start with a gamer's lexicon. And today's gamer's lexicon topic is vulnerable. So Taylor, when we talk about vulnerable, as far as like the meta rules, how would you describe that or explain that to someone who might be new to the role-playing scene? 
Yeah, so some creatures and objects are exceedingly difficult or unusually easy to hurt with certain types of damage. So if a creature or an object has vulnerability to a damage type, damage of that type is doubled against it. Vulnerability is applied after all other modifiers to damage. So, for example, um, if a creature has vulnerability to bludgeoning damage and is hit by an attack that deals 25 bludgeoning damage, but that creature is also within a magical aura that reduces damage by 5. That has a little bit of some some math that we can play around with, and I know that both of us are pretty fluffy, and um, <laughs> I, I regret having uh, the Professor of Crunch on here to help us through this, but um, let's see if we can muddle through. So we have 25 damage first that's bludgeoning. It's reduced by 5 because vulnerability applies after all damage, so that magical aura is going to take 5 right off the bat, yep. so bringing it down to 20. And then it's vulnerable, so that doubles. So that 20 becomes 40 damage in the final count. So this can get kind of fuzzy when we have multiple instances of vulnerability that may be affecting the same damage type um, as only one instance. So for example, um, if a creature has vulnerability to fire damage as well as vulnerability to all non-magical damage, if, for example, we were to throw a lit torch at this creature, the damage of non-magical fire is doubled against the creature, not tripled. So a quick note, when we are doubling a double, so for example, if we had to double that again from some other source, we, we do end up adding the multiplication. So two doubles is actually a triple, it's not a quadruple. Correct, and that, that is the way 5th edition handles it. I'm 99.9% .9 sure, the same with uh, 3.5. And that's, that's going to be really important when we look at stuff like critical hits, right? Yes, if you have like a magical weapon that does double damage against, say, were creatures, you have like a blade that is, you know, highly effective against certain types of creatures, and then you score a critical hit on them. I can't think of too many instances where you would double, double, a double. I'm sure there are some, particularly in like 3.5 and Pathfinder, where there's a lot more crunch and much, much more way to optimize that way. But I think in 5e, there's pretty much you're going to double on a crit, and then you may have a weapon that doubles, or they can, could be vulnerable so that they then double because of the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, so we wanted to talk about being vulnerable because that leads very much in today's General Assembly. So let's go ahead and move into today's General Assembly. When I first invited Taylor to come onto the show, I asked you, I was like, hey, you know, what would you like to talk about? And one of the first things you said is that you, you wanted to talk about playing a vulnerable character from like an emotional standpoint mm -hmm. and how we can explore maybe facets of ourselves or things that we don't necessarily experience as normal people in our everyday lives through role play. That sounded amazing to me. And anyone who's been listening to Wrought Iron, I'm doing this very much with ARMY. There is a lot about ARMY where I'm exploring some things about myself in a way that is, is quote unquote safe because it's just a character. And I've also said many times that you know, almost like a, like a comedy team, you need a straight man and the funny man. Sometimes being vulnerable means you are saying, I will be the target of the jokes for the sake of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, eventually I think that turns around and that's when it, it's, you know, you get the comeuppance of the person who's always doing the, the jab and they finally get their own. And that makes it awesome. So I'm a big fan of playing a character that is the butt of the jokes and is vulnerable. So I was excited to have you on to talk about this. So I'm just going to turn it over to you first and we'll go back and forth. When you think about or talk about playing vulnerable characters, what exactly do you mean? Yeah, and I think um, when I when I first approached this subject, I, I think I was talking more from being vulnerable as a player character standpoint, but I think that the, the way that we can open up that into 
what we do at the table is by looking at how to play vulnerable characters. So oftentimes we have, especially um, especially us dudes, because masculinity is a hell of a drug, we have a lot of negative emotions surrounding being open or being vulnerable, tapping into our emotions. And so playing characters who are vulnerable themselves give us a way to explore um, how we can mirror that in our everyday lives. Um, so having characters who care about things, who experience emotions, who allow themselves to not be sort of that sort of like stoic, um, you know, every man buff muscle dude at the party is, is a good way to sort of open ourselves up to the idea of bringing that into our everyday practice. So one thing that I do see repeated a lot, and this is in veteran gamers as well as people who are new to the hobby, is by, I, I heard it talked about when people were talking about, um, what was that Matt Damon movie where he was on Mars? Is The Martian. The Martian. Um, yep. Uh, I heard one of the criticisms for that was that it was um, a term called competency porn, which was this character is really good at doing things, and the drama and the movie is how is he going to be good at doing this next challenge. And I think that that would be the first hurdle to sort of look at when we are running this race of how can we be more vulnerable with our characters and with ourselves. And so it's going to be tough when we have games like Dungeons and Dragons or like World of Darkness, uh, any of these games where we have skills that give mechanical rewards or have points that determine our our character's worth in certain areas. So when we look at at being vulnerable and opening ourselves to, you know, the humanity. Um, and I say humanity in air quotes because oftentimes we are playing elves, dwarves, um, all of these things that aren't really human. But um, you know what I mean? The humanity of the, the character that we're playing is humans often fail at things. And that can seem counterintuitive when we have these characters who are all about succeeding at things when we're building them. I kind of think that, that, is, that is somewhat at odds with the idea of role-playing in the the basis sense where it's escapism mm -hmm. you know it's the same reason why i go watch movies and that's a good example of the martian because i'm watching someone and i want to see them be good at things right in in that particular sense i mean i know there's dramatic movies where you need to see the characters fail so that their ultimate success is more rewarding but i do think that particularly newer players whether newer means younger or newer just new to the game they want to create these Superman or Superwoman type characters who are maybe the things that they aren't in real life, mm -hmm. that, that they can do the things that they've always wanted to do, this sort of fantasy escapism. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think that there is a depth to the game that you don't fully appreciate until you start realizing that, like you said, failure is a part of life. And if failure is then becomes part of your game, it opens up a lot of avenues to explore yourself and the game. And I think have a more rich and rewarding experience. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I was going with that. Um, and so I'm glad that you put it into, into words that way in that, yes, we, we may have these characters that are built to succeed at things, but that success isn't going to mean as much if we don't see the struggles and the failures that come before it. And that may require a little bit of changing the mindset of an RPG character where you have everything on the sheet that is going to tell you how you're going to do good at something. You may have to be creative and come up on your own with the things that your character is going to struggle with. Um, and I know that a lot of games do have things like flaws or like negative character traits 
that you can sort of take and, and look at in terms of things. But in my experience, those seem to be more of a min-max exercise. So how can I squeeze um, flaw points into um, something that I'm never going to use? So uh, I have this really badass archer guy, and he can shoot uh, an arrow, a football field with pinpoint accuracy. But he has this flaw that he is really bad at melee combat. Well, I'm never going to be in melee combat, so that doesn't matter. I can just take that flaw and use those points to, you know, buff up my bow. Right. What I would suggest is looking for flaws that are related to the things that you want to do. Because that makes you confront your flaws and confront the the possibility of failure on a regular basis. So if you have something on your character sheet that is you're just going to, you know, brush under the rug, that's not doing anything. Um you you might as well just say give me the extra points and and make your you know badass legolas guy right or and sometimes they don't even have to be things you won't do sometimes the flaw can be building towards what you want to do mm-hmm. you know if if you're going to play the barbarian rush into combat type you can take flaws in some games that are like you're impetuous or mm-hmm. you ha- you have no patience or you're aggressive okay mm-hmm. i'm going to rush into battle and kill things as a flaw and now I'm going to do it even better. So a- absolutely. But but I will say that I have played in games where there are mechanical benefits to taking flaws, but I have still used them uh, in my role play. So while that they can be used that way, they don't have to be. They can still be a starting point of how are you going to role play this character. And, and again, to bring Army back up from Rot Iron, we went into the game knowing that Army was going to be gullible and very naive. And I have, I think, you know, others can argue, I think I've done a good job of role-playing her as someone whose naivety and gullibility has added to the story mm-hmm. without, and, and it, has, it has put me in situations where, you know, the, again, if you're not listening, spoiler, uh, there are some things that are very obvious to the audience that are, that I know, I, I know what's happening, but ARMY doesn't, because it doesn't make sense for her to know. And so finding these flaws and the things that your character struggles with is just the first step to playing a vulnerable character. The second step is confronting them and having your character deal with them physically, not not necessarily physically, deal with them in a tangible sense. So if you have a character with that flaw that you know that they struggle with or that is an issue for them, make it coalesce in the fiction or the narrative or any of your role playing address that deal with it um talk to characters who may be in a position to help you um so if you have a character who is naive um if they make a mistake because of that naivete next role-playing session if you have a moment that your characters are sitting down by a campfire that's a very common trope in fantasy role plays like the the first watch um mm-hmm. if you're on watch with someone um have the mood get down maybe dim the lights a little bit and say hey can i talk to you a moment I feel terrible about this mistake that I made, and I don't know that I have the power to change that about myself, and I need help with this. And have that conversation sort of, you know, drive your role play into these areas and explore that part of your character. One thing that I do often see people talk about um, in advice blogs, in podcasts, in pretty much everything, is that the characters that we play all reflect little bits of ourselves. So if you find something that you're having trouble with, if it's in a safe environment for you, and I I do want to stress that, you know, make sure that you're doing this with people that you trust, that everything is going to be safe for you when you're doing this. Say, 
you know, have your character address the things that you may be struggling with um, in the same way that like the the very special episode trope of like 90s sitcoms did. So one thing for me that I struggle with as Taylor, as Taylor, the, the player is my bipolar depression and my anxieties. And so if I'm playing and I have characters that are struggling with this, finding, you know, finding it difficult to, to overcome that sort of sense of apathy or depression on my low periods, I can have my characters sort of safely address that and say, you know, the stress of the situation is really wearing on me. I don't know how much longer I can take to, you know, maybe dealing with this. Can you help? And sort of having that role play give you a sort of fictional example of how you may be able to tackle that problem in real life. And I know that there's, um, you know, the, the knee jerk reaction to say, uh, of that is, oh, this is just a game. It's not like, uh, it's a fiction. It's not real. Um, this might be, you know, something that you can do, but there's, um, a growing population within like the education community and the therapy community that talk about role play as a, a tool to sort of get through, um, issues. And um, there's a, a games collection that I want to talk about call, called Two Weeks. It's by Dan Enders. Uh, it's on RPG right now, and it's raised uh, over $300 for the ACLU. And there's a game in that by a friend of mine named Kevin Bates, and the game is called Let's Talk About X. And it's literally, that's the micro game. It's find something that, you, something that you want to talk about. Here are the mechanics for talking about it with another person. And just seeing that as like a really like very concentrated and coalesced version of the ideas that I've had about playing vulnerable characters and dealing with my own vulnerabilities uh, is something that was very powerful. Okay. And, and there, there's a lot to unpack. <laughs> in, yeah, in yeah. I just kind of laid everything out there. <laughs> no, and again, I, that's great. From the character or for the game, I should say from the game standpoint, I think that if you're going to play a, a vulnerable character, there's there's a point there's a part of the game like if you get points for example if I choose gullible as points mm-hmm. and over time my character is no longer gullible am I cheating the system by saying well my character's grown so she's not gullible anymore but I still had those five extra bonus points types of thing for me being Professor Fluff I don't care I don't care at all about that a character that never changes is not interesting right. Uh, except the the rare occasions where the fact that they refuse to change is the interesting part. Mm-hmm. So so again, they're you know everything is is flexible, I guess. But for me, I want characters to grow. I want them to develop over time. And having a scene where I do something bad because of a flaw, whatever it is, and then I address that flaw and I try to fix that flaw, that's great. Like that's mm-hmm. that's solid role playing to me. I want I want to see that. If it's true to life, eventually I will probably backslide and and revisit it in some way, maybe differently than than the original one, or I might just have a lapse and have a bad day and do the same type of mistake. So just because I address the issue doesn't mean it's over, which is why therapists exist. You don't go to a therapist once and solve all of your problems, you know? It's and for some people this is a lifelong thing that you do. And, you know, again, in being vulnerable, I have been to a therapist for depression. Uh, myself, uh, when I lost my mother a couple of years ago, very suddenly, it absolutely just destroyed me. And uh, I've, I've also dealt with bipolarism and, and, and depression. And it, it put me in a place that I'd never been before. And I, I sought out some therapy and it was very helpful to me. You know, it's kind of a joke. When you go to therapy, they always talk about, let's role play that. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason why, because it's <laughs> yeah. very effective. You know, and, and absolutely, Army 
And again, I know I'm spoiling the crap out of Rod Iron if you've not been listening, but there's an episode where uh, a character close to Army dies, and we had a full scene. Actually, I think we had almost two episodes that were dedicated to up to the funeral and then after the funeral. And I 100% was channeling my emotions from my mother's death into Army. Mm-hmm. And and it was very cathartic. I mean, it. I don't want to say it was a good experience because it wasn't, but it was a helpful experience. Yeah. So again, I've I've kind of jumped. I don't I don't even know where we're at at this point because I've you know talking about the games and and how that can work, uh, and then it can be very therapeutic in real life as well. Beyond those things, is there any other examples that you could talk about or or or, or bring to the table that maybe maybe is like a, a starting point? Someone who's not done this before, what is a an easy like baby step into playing a vulnerable character when you're normally playing He Man or Shira? Mm-hmm. And for for people who are looking to get into the uh, a little bit more of a vulnerable side of role playing, I would suggest taking a step back from the systems that you're normally using and look at games that are coming out that are smaller. Um, micro games are uh, a pet project, like a pet passion of mine, um, and specifically for this reason. So uh, you have small games that are between one and and you know ten fifteen pages long, and they're designed to do very few specific things but they do those few specific things very very well so if you're looking at the the sort of sillier side of things lasers and feelings is one of my favorite micro games that's the first one that i ever played and that's just about you know highfalutin you know space opera sci-fi shoot 'em up kiss the the alien sort of deal but it does that incredibly well if you're looking to have a little bit more of a vulnerable side looking at things I'm trying to think of a really good example for like a specific character point of view, but um, the Quiet Year, uh, which has very quickly become one of my favorite games, does it as a larger level. So the Quiet Year, for people who aren't familiar, is a map game that tells the story of a village recently coming out of a very devastating war, and the village spends uh, a year, and you play the game out a week. Uh, a week at a time in this year of this village after after they've been reduced to almost nothing by this war. And then at the end of the game, at the end of winter, the Frost Shepherds arrive. And you don't really know anything about the Frost Shepherds other than that they come in the winter and they're called the Frost Shepherds. And then the third thing that you know is that they kill everyone in the village. So you're playing this year of reconstruction, trying to rebuild, knowing as players that everything is going to be wiped out. And that allows you to really get into the emotions of the village. You can create, you know, notable people in the village and talk in their characters when you are doing like town discussions or having projects start that relate to them. And I've, I've played in games of the quiet year where it's very silly. Um, one of my favorite activities to do is play it over roll 20 with their little drawing and painting tools because then it comes out, um, you're creating this map as you play. So at the end of the game, if you do it in Roll20, it looks like just like a terrible MS Paint disaster. Um, <laughs> and it's incredible. But you can also have it just be really touching, thought-provoking. The, the the loaded questions on all of the cards that you play out are really there to help drive and make this a real village for you. So some of the, the qu- questions that you have to answer are things like, you you find something new and mysterious on the edge of the map. What is it and how can you use it? But then some of the other questions are, the weakest person among you dies. Who's to blame for their death? And having this smaller experience 
sort of holding your hand and teaching you how to be vulnerable while you're doing this role play, you can learn the lessons and learn the seeds to then take it into systems like Dungeons and Dragons or um, like Numenera. I I love those systems, but I don't think that they are set up um, in terms of encouraging that. So if you have eight eight chapters of how to run combat and two paragraphs of how to talk about your character's goals that tells you kind of what the game is focused on doing at the table. And so if you're looking for ways to teach you how to do the other things, you kind of have to go to other games. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I'm a firm believer and I've said before, you can do anything with D and D. I don't care what game you want to play. I can make it work in D and D, but I'm going to mm-hmm. cheat like a mug to make it happen. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm going to change things on, on that and whatever needs to be done. So I, I definitely agree. I have not had a lot of experience with micro micro games. It's, I've gotten more and more experience again as the podcast and with the going to more conventions. Mm-hmm. And and it does seem like you want to cultivate the type of experience that you want. And while yes, I can tell a horror story in D and D, Dread does so much work for me that if I want to tell a horror story, why not use it? You know, mm-hmm. for a, for a one shot. You know, things like there's a Ten Candles, which I have not yet played, but supposedly it's going to happen soon. Oh, my God. More a Catacon flailing because I played Ten Candles for the first time at a Catacon, and it was in a brightly lit convention hall with dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people there talking and making noise. And we played Ten Candles. Again, I'm Kevin Bates is like one of my favorite people in RPGs right now. He is uh, at Kevin Bates on Twitter, I think. I want to actually give him credit if I'm going to be talking about him so much. Uh, but he ran 10 Candles, and in all of this, like, big, like, qua- like loud, bright environment, I was still terrified. Like, my my legs were bouncing, I was, like, white-knuckling the table. Like, this was a terrifying, terrifying game. But that's because that's that's the only thing that 10 Candles does, is create this really concentrated scary experience um so just to mention uh, catacon 2017 uh we've actually we are going to be renting out secondary side rooms for things like that so for panels we'll have their own rooms if somebody wants to run a horror type game we can put them in their own room Mm -hmm. so even though it was a great success anyways it could potentially be even more terrifying and uh and awesome and haunting Mm -hmm. next year if you come to a catacon so but absolutely, that's that's a game that's been on my radar for a while. Um, Jim McClure told me about a fiasco playset. He well, I don't, think, I don't think it was a fiasco playset. It was it was by the same guy who did fiasco, Jason Morningstar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ran it. I guess it was more like a LARP, but it's essentially you're playing a bunch of uh, people in a spaceship or space station, and and they take damage. And yeah. basically, the game is played where you lie on the floor, the room is dark, and the only way to interact is like by using your com. And the people who moderate the game have ways of signaling to you silently whether or not you can respond. Yeah. So oh. so you'll be talking to somebody back and forth and be like, you know, Taylor, how you doing? How's your how's your error? And then Taylor just doesn't respond. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, that means Taylor's dead. And then maybe like 10 minutes later, they turn you back on and you're like, oh, my comm was broken. So you had this crazy role. And the way he described it, oh I wanted to play it so badly. Like right now, like I wanted to play it. It sounds amazing, and and that is a type of experience that, as much as I love D anD I'm not going to be able to recreate that type of experience in D anD mm-hmm. So I I do have Kevin's Twitter. It's at I am Kevin Bates. Um, but yes, I have heard about this game that Jim played. Um, he talked about it. Uh, I can't remember where, but yes, uh, probably a catacomb. Probably. <laughs> 
Oh my goodness, I want to play that so bad. Jason Morningstar does really, really great LARP stuff. There's a game that he has called LARP Bus, which is basically just uh, an excuse to have a quiet room at a convention that may not have that set up. You would come into the room that the LARP is being happening or that the LARP is being run in, and you're handed a ticket which has some character notes on it like who you are and where you're going and you sit down uh in these rows of chairs and you can just hang out be quiet decompress a little bit um if you would like you can talk to the other passengers in character um but there's nothing telling you to do so uh and then every half an hour or so they will announce that the bus is stopping at a certain spot and you can just get up and go um if that's your spot but um (laughs) LARPs and small games are are incredible for learning how to recreate or model uh, different emotions or reactions that you're looking to get out of your players. So to try to sort of turn this back into like a D&D centric conversation or, or a more mainstream game, mm-hmm. I, I think part of it is if you're going to do this, you have to be okay with losing. Yes. And I think that is one of the main struggles. And, you know, I, we've joked about it on our show dozens of times and it's something i've experienced where you put the players in a situation where they should know this is not winnable mm-hmm. they should run away or they should surrender and there's this sort of just innate aggressive you know mental state that people get in they're like no i don't care if there's a hundred guards i'm going to shoot the king in the face mm-hmm. because they don't want their character to lose and they would be they would prefer their character to die in the attempt than to admit defeat mm-hmm. And I think that's just a mindset that we need to get past, you know, and I feel like I have, I'm sure there's still exceptions where I, where I don't, but I, you need to just say, you know, maybe even mathematically, I'm a fifth level fighter. Maybe I Mm -hmm. got a party of fifth level characters. Statistically, maybe we could actually win that fight if there's a hundred guardsmen, but for the sake of the story, maybe I say, okay, I'll, I'll let you throw me in the dungeon. For this thing I didn't do when you when you actually killed the former king and you're the you know the the vizier who's now taken uh, control. Fine, throw me in the dungeon. I'm going to escape. Of course, I'm going to escape. The, mm-hmm. the game isn't over. Rather than having that fight there, and I think what what you get into is this sort of cross section of agency versus story. And the mm-hmm. people who are on the far side will be like, "No, it's my game. Don't don't tell me I have to surrender because my character doesn't want to surrender." Well, you're right. But if you let me cultivate the experience as the dungeon master and give you an opportunity where when you finally overthrow that false king, it will be much more satisfying than a four-hour slog roll fest where, okay, yeah, you happen to kill 100 guardsmen and then kill the king and no one's there to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I guess me as a person, I'm, I'm okay as the dungeon master and as a player to going along with the story knowing eventually I will have that moment that makes it worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would encourage people listening to be more than okay with failure, to um, actively seek it out in situations where failure would be more important. Um, So there are times, and I'm going to throw away the pretense that everyone is completely honest with their roles 100% of the time. Everyone listening to this has fudged at least one role at any given point in time in their gaming career. I fudge rolls to say that I fail sometimes. Like, I'll say I rolled a nat one and get a critical failure if I think that it's going to be more interesting than succeeding on something. I have, there was a time recently where I was rolling super well. I mean, just like crazy good. 
And I rolled a nat 20 and I said it was a hit. I, di I didn't say I missed, but I, I didn't want, like, it just felt like I was taking over too much time mm -hmm. uh, or, or uh, I guess the spotlight. And there are, there have been occasions where I will just say, no, I'll fail here rather than even roll. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been cases where the DM might say, do you want to make a saving throw to try to blah, blah, blah. But no, I think it just makes more sense I would fail here. Uh, so, so I definitely have done that recently that I couldn't speak to. As a DM, I fudge all the time, but that's for the sake of the story. <laughs> all right. So again, I, I think we could probably do several episodes on this and maybe even do a new podcast. But for today, is there anything else that you would want to throw out on playing vulnerable characters, why you should do it, anything we haven't already touched on on how you could start doing it? Maybe like, a again, baby step first thing in a normal, I don't say normal, in a mainstream game like D&D, Numenera, Savage Worlds. How would someone get started with this? Yeah, so I have I have three very tiny things. So I know that I say I have three things, but I will make them quick. Um, the first is to look at games that are powered by the apocalypse, because that has built-in failure that you are rewarded for. So anytime that you fail on your rolls or um, that you have to compromise on what your desires are or what your character is moving for or any ways that may be um, mechanically requiring you to tap into that vulnerable state you get rewarded for not most of the time it's with story and with like xp rewards um but even if it doesn't have xp rewards there will always be a story benefit to tapping into that vulnerable side the second is to um check out two podcasts that are run by people who I look up to very much. Uh, and these are kind of smaller podcasts. The first is Party of One, uh, and that's hosted by Jeff Stormer. That's a, a podcast about two-player RPGs. So it's one GM and one player most of the time. And that will really, really, really teach you how to get vulnerable with yourself because there's no other party members to steal the spotlight. Everything is on that one character. And so you can really get how things are fleshed out, um, making them a person, dealing with these real, like, you know, these issues that affect them and seeing how that character is affected by them. The other is a podcast that Jeff is also on called All My Fantasy Children, uh, where he and his friend Aaron, it's basically a character creation podcast, but it takes every single step of character creation and forms a very like real and visceral character in this real and visceral world every step of the way and talking about okay um we're rolling on these random tables what does this mean for this character's history what does it mean for who they are um and i i'm making it sound a lot more serious than it is because it's very much a comedy romp okay they have uh, one of their most recent episodes. The character that they create is named Pelter, and they are literally a sentient beaver person with yaoi hands and MC Hammer pants who scoot around and can only screech to communicate. But they also have an episode where it's like, hey, this race of beastmen it literally is ageless, so they can't remember everything that happens in their lives. What happens when that that memory that they lose is something important to who they are as a person? What memories are they keeping? What memories are they losing? Um, what does this say about the civilization that they're living in? And I seem to have forgotten the third thing. <laughs> Tweet at me about it, and I will probably have remembered by the time this episode goes live. <laughs> okay. If, it, if you remember, we'll, we'll throw it back in at the far end. So, mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic conversation. I, I, love, I love the idea of playing a more vulnerable character for what it can do for me as a person and as a role player in the story that we're trying to tell. And then, especially for someone who puts a podcast out for entertainment purposes, I want that show to be as entertaining as possible and sometimes that means our characters need to fail either as individuals or as a group 
so that our later successes will be more important. So, but we're not done yet. So we're gonna move out of the general assembly and we're gonna move into today's last segment, which is cryptozoology. And again, when I reached out to you and said, hey, do you wanna do this show? And I mentioned this segment, you were very excited about today's monster. That is the shambling mound. So I will just start with you, Taylor. What is it about the shambling mound that you find so exciting? Yeah, so shambling mounds are 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 amazing to me. Just they, for those who don't know, they are super not super intelligent, but they are more intelligent than your normal plant, um, smarter than the average bear type of plant. They are just a a creature born of roots and uh, vines, uh, leaves, just this whole just mass of vegetation that is coming at you with intent and they are hungry they are generally evil most of the time they're used in terms of this sort of like raw primitive nature thing and so for people listening to the detention uh episode where i um just blabber on endlessly about druids you'll recognize a common theme here that just this sort of you can use the shared conscious imagery that we have of nature and how that scares us into creating these creatures to um, to deal with. And I did come up with a little bit of notes here. The first thing that I want to talk about is carnivorous plants in general. So the first thing that we think about when we think about carnivorous plants is the Venus flytrap. So this thing that is waiting... It sits in wait with sweet-smelling sap inside of uh, two petals. And when a fly or other creature lands, those petals close with... They look like teeth. And just kills this creature and slowly dissolves it for eating. The plant doesn't move. Uh, it's relatively small. But it's it's there and it's ever-present and it will eat you if you are not careful. There are also carnivorous plants like the pitcher plant which is literally um just a flower that is a bucket and a whole bunch of sugar water in there and then like the the venus flytrap if something goes in there it can't get out it was it was baited in to the siren's call of the sugar water if we want to get poetic about it uh and it dies and then the plant digests it there's a whole bunch of really cool carnivorous plants out there. They all look like something from another planet, which is amazing if you're trying to get that sort of like weird aberration feel to your creature, but you're wanting to keep it grounded. Um, throw that into Shambling Mounds. I talked with the the Druid segment that I know almost nothing about rules. I'm very bad with mechanics, but what I, I think that I can take pride in in thinking of a strength is the my ability to create an image or create a feeling with something. Um, so if you have this sort of shambling and slowly creeping pile of moss that's coming towards you with, with strange flowers and, and sparkling spores, and you have this sweet smell that comes over you and this almost compulsion to move towards it. But as soon as you touch it, it's, it's, tendrils wrap around you and constrict and you can feel the acid sort of eating away at your hand as it digests you that's something that i think is is really cool that you can add to your shambling mounds and to go along with that i did prepare a couple environment specific mounds because you're never going to be playing you know your forest the same way as another person so if you have these shambling mounds that make their environments uh, or make their habits in the natural environment of your world what does that mean if you're playing in a desert you can look at the the plants that you have in that natural environment so cacti uh, would make a terrifying shambling mound if you can think of not just like any regular shambling mound but also a shambling mound that has just like horrible needle spikes <laughs> on every single inch of it and it's coming at you 
Deserts are also home to scrub brush or air plants, which don't have like roots that tie them down, but they're moving, um, moving around or carried by the air, these small little spores. What happens when those spores come together as a colony? You have the shambling mound that not only is dangerous, but can also fly at you. <laughs> and that's terrifying. Uh, if you have just like this huge tumbleweed creature with spikes and thorns and it's like, hey, guess what? Death from above. That's going to be fun. In the Arctic, there's this weird, cool thing called permafrost, which is um, plants and vegetation that freezes and becomes solid and then doesn't completely thaw out. And so more plants and vegetation grow on top of that and then freezes and doesn't co totally thaw out and then dies and then more and more on that. And so you have this um, this sort of like huge... Um, mound that looks like dirt as soon as it unfreezes though it's just all these plants and what's even more terrifying is that everything that freezes inside of it is preserved so there's russian permafrost that is defrosting right now due to climate change and there is bacteria and fungi that's been trapped in that ice for millions of years that's starting to thaw out. Um, and so if you have this shambling mound that's in this sort of like Jurassic permafrost that as your characters are coming up to it is dripping down into a pool, if they fill their water up at that pool, that you can hit them with that poison and then attack them with the shambling mound. There's aquatic kelp gardens that stretch on for dozens and dozens of feet. Rich Howard is going to love listening to this because aquatics. Uh, <laughs> so if you have these kelp shambling mounds that are just like huge, long, like almost like a doll Salvador Dali's elephants where you have this mass and then they're like spindly legs that reach down to the roots. Kelp is also very strong, very tough, and it can clog things. So if you have a boat, they get stuck in this kelp mound and then the kelp mound just not anything like quick or or sudden or scary, but it just slowly starts creeping around your boat, trying to eat it. You have urban mounds, which are weeds and conglomerates of people's gardens. Um, so if you have a shambling mound that's dispersed between a city block, um, that it has its root systems in everyone's garden. Um, and you can have little tiny mounds that come up and get things. Um, otherwise, you have, you know, if you're looking at modern games, if you want to have a shambling mound, all those weeds that grow up between sidewalks and in the cracks and roads, how hardy and tough those must be to live in that inhospitable environment, they're going to make it a lot harder to kill and get rid of because their natural environment wants to do that to them anyway. <laughs> um, and then finally... Shambling mounds in the underdark, so down where there's no sun to um, to to nourish these plants, a shambling mound would instead be made of different funguses, um, mosses, slimes, and oozes. Uh, you can really, really like deep in and embrace that sort of like disgusting like slime mold, this white milky substance that's dripping and and oozing over something, and then having little mushrooms appear on anything that it touches, and you can't get rid of those. So even after the party you know defeats or um or gets away from this mound, they're stuck with the long lasting consequences of it. So really, when you're you're using these shambling mounds, being in touch with the sort of cool creepy fun stuff that nature and plants do on a natural like a day-to-day -day basis and tying that into your role play so that it's more than like a 8d4 hit dice um with a slam attack and engulf which engulf is scary enough but if you have engulf that also 
if you have a pitcher plant that is engulfing, you're not only doing engulfing rules, you're not only doing digestion rules, you're doing drowning rules, could be doing uh, like constriction rules at the same time, and really beefing up that encounter to make it, you know, more than what's just on the page. Okay, so a lot of what you said kept sparking ideas from me, and you covered some of them, but... So one of the things I love doing is presenting the players with an imperfect solution. And so th- my first idea was to have a shambling mound that is just huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like hundreds of miles, like like the entire swamp is maybe one shambling mound, but it has been contained by something. But the PCs, and this is generations later, they don't know that, and they are questing to go into the swamp, and they have to retrieve something for a quest. Mm-hmm. Turns out the thing they have to retrieve is what has kept this thing dormant for hundreds of years. You know, it's still going to be slow moving. Like if you read the book and in, in, in 5e, it's uh, page 270, the Monster's Manual. Mm-hmm. You know, basically it says they very slowly creep forward and they sort of eat and absorb everything around them and they just keep moving forward. And just almost like a Venus flytrap or other creature, if something gets on them or in them, it obviously will eat them and attack them. Mm-hmm. So you could have the, the characters walking into the swamp fighting normal swamp type creatures alligators and snakes and sturges they get to the center they pluck the 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 orchid or they they pull the stone or sort of from the stone whatever the case may be well now they're in the center of Mm -hmm. a massive shambly mound that wants to do nothing but to kill them and is at the same time moving possibly towards the city or village or continent that they are trying to protect so they've they've created a new problem that may be even worse than the one they were trying to solve so I love doing things like that, and I think a, a large shambling mound it would be awesome for that. I think something to look into that, because I love that idea so much. There's something that is terrifying to me that is called the Pando. It's P-A-N-D-O. It's also known as the Trembling Giant. It's a, a clonal colony, which means that there are multiple different um, like things for it, uh, but it shares... Uh, a base so it's a single aspen root system that puts up uh, individual trees in utah it's 106 acres large and it's over 80,000 years old something that big and that old 80,000 is like the common age for it some some tree experts put the age at a at close to a million years old oh wow yeah so if you have something that's this big and this huge that's just sitting there, and like you said, it's it's been there forever, it'll be there, it's been there before you can remember, it'll be there long after people forget you. Yeah. It's there, it's massive, and you can do something about it, but you might regret it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you might make things worse. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the permafrost is, is similar to that, but I, I like the idea that there's something that is lost that the characters have to get very similar. Mm-hmm. And so they have to thaw out or they have to dig down to a, a level. And then that freeze again, maybe not the gigantic mm-hmm. one, but it just, it frees a thing like the shambling man, like you were describing that is now a danger that is so old that it may have vulnerabilities or resistances to go mm-hmm. back to our time earlier to, hey. what, to <laughs> what we, to what we talk about now. Maybe it's completely resistant to magic because it's from an age of magic or before magic. Mm-hmm. And so you have to fight it with mundane weapons, but it's got so much power that mundane weapons, it's difficult to hit it and hurt it, but it takes longer. But if you use magic, maybe you even heal it and it, it gets additional health from using a magical weapon. Like you could make what should normally be a fairly mundane encounter pretty interesting by changing the rules a little bit up with vulnerabilities and resistances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that I think is truly terrifying is the Underdark version, 
Yeah. Uh, the idea of this creature that is made up of all these different types of materials and it has oozes that are like pseudopods and it will like lash out and grab you and pull you in and engulf you. It's almost like those my kids have those little like frog sticky things where you can like yeah. pick up a piece of paper. <laughs> so it's not just like, an, uh, like a, a gel- gelatinous cube that you might run into, but it can like 30 feet grab you and pull you into it when you think you're safe. Mm-hmm. So I could see any of those being an awesome and interesting encounter. Uh, from media, there's a book called The Ruins, which was made into a movie. Movie's pretty good. Book's really good. That is essentially about an evil, and I do mean evil, intelligent plant that the locals know about, but unfortunately some tourists do not. And I won't ruin the story, but uh, it's it's terrifying. This evil plant is evil, and it, it doesn't just hurt people. It toys with them and like mm. truly makes them in pain and in terror before it will actually consume them. So definitely seek out the movies two hours, you know, it's pretty easy, but the book is a much better version of the story if you want to read that. But either one of those two, I think would be a great starting point for trying to figure out how to do a shambling mound. And in in that particular story, again, I'll try not to spoil it, but similar to the first one, we'll say there's like an ancient ruin you have to go to that this shambling mound is part of or in or under or on. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's not the main thing you're doing, but it's making it harder. So certain places of the ruins may be covered completely and you have to maybe cut a hole through it or or defeat part of it to get past it. But then later you got to come back out, that type of thing. I love your idea from the permafrost thing of there's something in there that we need. Because how many like scary movies have we seen where it's like these scientists, they go and they get something. They're like, oh, here's this. We'll say that it's like a gem that's trapped in the permafrost. If your if your PCs go and they get this gem and they bring it back, they thaw it out, and they're they're playing with the gem. They're all you know distracted by how pretty it is. Maybe it has like magical qualities. They turn around and the piece of moss that they thawed it out of is gone. Mm. And then you have that sci-fi horror trope of it's here somewhere, right? And it's trying to pick us off. It's, and that it's could be the your thing. Whole Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh yeah. my goodness, I love Which that. <laughs> it's one of my favorite favorite movies of all time. I love the the original. Well, not the original; it's the sequel or no, mm-hmm. the, the remake. But then I think they've remade it again. It's the Kurt Russell version. It's a great movie. It's terrifying, and it is it is absolutely one of the inspirations for me. Whenever I use doppelgangers in a game, mm-hmm. it is it is directly lineage back to watching the movie. The thing I think it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, any final words on Shamley Mounds before we wrap up today? Uh, I do want to throw in uh, two quick things. The first, another movie, uh, if we're looking for inspiration. We've talked a lot about how shambling mounds are scary. If we're using them in a comedy game, Little Shop of Horrors would be a great example (laughs) of how to use that in something that's a little bit sillier or funnier. That is a musical about a gardener, florist. um, He works at a plant shop, taking care of this, this large carnivorous plant who is slowly eating people and he has to comedically figure out what to do and then the second thing that i want to talk about is the the little encounter that i had which is also a little bit sillier which is a maybe an evil druid is keeping a bunch of these but is cultivating them as bonsai plants oh so you have a bunch of little tiny shambling mounds that are really cute and very beautiful, but at night they go out and they wreak havoc. <laughs> and then they come back and they, they sit in their pots. Maybe the druid doesn't even know that they're right. shambling mounds. Yeah, He's exactly. just like, do-do-do-do. Nice. <laughs> no, that's, that's pretty, yeah, for a, for a more lighthearted take, mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. 
All right, so let's wrap things up today. Uh, so obviously we hope you've enjoyed today's show. Thank you, Taylor, so much for being a part of what we do here at the network. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for doing what you do on your show. Before we close out completely, though, we want to thank our new Patreon supporters here at the RPG Academy. If you didn't know, we do have a Patreon uh, set up so that you can donate financially to our show. It helps us with getting new equipment. I got new microphones. I got a bunch of new cameras, which is part of the reason why we can do these live shows. And all that money helps supply us with those things. And our newest patron is Remy. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the last name. Taylor, do you want to take a shot at the last name? It might be uh, Remy Bilodeau. It might be French. It's B-I-L-O-D-E-A-U. If I've pronounced that wrong, let me know, and I will pronounce it right. If I pronounce it wrong, I we know, so that's why we would try. <laughs> but, uh, but Remy, uh, he pledged monthly support to our show. Even a dollar a month, it, it, that is, if everyone who listens to our show donated a dollar a month, it would be basically life-changing money for Caleb and I and what we want to do for our show. If you don't want to or can't, do a monetary donation, completely fine. Completely understand that. There are other ways you can help our show out. Uh, You can leave us a rating or review on iTunes so that more people will find us. If you don't use iTunes, which a lot of people don't, you can go to Stitcher Radio. You can't listen to us on Stitcher Radio, but you don't have to listen to us on Stitcher Radio, but you can still leave us a review on Stitcher Radio, which will help more people who do listen on Stitcher Radio find us as well. If you shop on Amazon or on DriveThruRPG, which I'm assuming a lot of people will, some people may want to pick up the uh, the two weeks thing that you were talking about earlier. If you go through our portal first, so go to our website, click on the link, anything you buy at DriveThru, we get a very small percentage. Same thing, Amazon, you can buy whatever you want. It doesn't have to be RPG related, but everything you buy, a very small percentage comes back to us that way. Now, Taylor, you also have a Patreon set up, correct? Yeah, we do. So Riverhouse Games has a Patreon that covers um, pretty much everything that we do. So we have two podcasts, a third coming in 2017. Like I said, we are I'm producing a zine about micro games, and I am also writing and producing my own uh, sort of game. Most of them are micro games. We do have a couple that are a bit longer. One of them that I would like to get out by the time that this airs is called Creatures of Blood and Flesh. Uh, it's a science fantasy game that I use the Cypher System creator for. So the system that Numenera and the Strange run off of Monty Cook's Monty Cook Games has opened that license for people to create and sell their products through DriveThruRPG. Um, so look out for that. But yeah, that Patreon really helps us bring in stuff. So it, it covers web hosting. It allows me to pay people for uh, art and layout, which is um, which are two things that I do not have the skills for. And I do also think that people should be paid for their work. So if people are doing work for my games, um, I want to make sure that that's something that I can compensate that, them for. And that Patreon is the best way to help me do that. Awesome. So hopefully you will check out uh, Riverhouse Games, all of the things that Taylor does, and specifically Game Closet, which is on our network. Mm -hmm. If you feel like donating to our show, absolutely, we would love it. If you don't want to, but you still want to listen, that's great too. We we appreciate all of our listeners. That's great. Tell a friend about us. That's fantastic. We love all that. But I was I was looking for my gavel. I couldn't find it. I've refelted my table and I I misplaced it. Uh, So I will. I'm going to make a makeshift gavel, but. uh, but that's the end of today's show. Taylor, again, thank you for, for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, this has been Michael. This has been Taylor. <laughs> and we will see you next time. I declare this meeting adjourned. That's a terrible sound, but it'll be, it'll be fine. <laughs>for listening to the rpg academy podcast the flagship program of the rpg academy network 
If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at therpgacademy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.